Um, for today, let's talk a little bit about the murder in the vineyard. If you're keeping notes with me tonight, they're not going to be on the screen. I'll help you out as you go. But the title of my message tonight is Murder in the Vineyard. A new pastor went to visit the home of a congregation member, uh, new in town, new to her. So upon arriving, he wanted to make a good impression. So he dug into his bag of tricks like we all do, and he noticed that at her house, she had a really nice garden. Very, very pretty. You could tell it was really worked well. And so uh, probably a, a yard of the month type of person, uh, if they still do that. And so she, he, he knocks on the door and, and he says to her, man, this is such a great garden. Uh, and wanted to kind of impress her and, and his, uh, his piousness and said, uh, you know, praise God for all of his handiwork. And the, the lady kind of looked at him and she said, now, now preacher, don't, don't give, go and giving God all the credit for this. You should have seen this garden when the Almighty had it to himself. And so, and so there's some theology there, actually. You know, God obviously makes all things beautiful. We know that. He is the creator. He, he does it. What's exciting for us to, as a church is that he invites us to join him in that work. He gives us the opportunity to be a part of the growth and the beauty that he brings about. He's the one that creates it. He's the one that sustains it, but he invites us to be partners with him as he continues to grow. That is the way it is in the church of God. Tonight, as we meet together, we are meeting together as an undefeated group. We are part of an exciting mission that has continued uh, for the last 2,000 years and will continue until Jesus comes. He is growing his church. His kingdom is advancing. No matter what you hear in the news, no matter what you think when you lay your head down at night, no matter what the darkness may say, the kingdom of Jesus is advancing. Let me give the church just a few reminders of what God says about his church tonight. He says that the gates of hell will not prevail against you, you, his church. You are on the offense. The, the gates of hell are on the defense. They will not prevail against you. He says that according to um, in Ephesians 2, 20 and 22, we are put together, we meet together tonight, and we become the dwelling place of God. As we meet together in this place, God dwells here in our midst. This is his body. He comes. His presence is here with us, among us. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 15 that we are a household. We are a family of God. There's a reason that the church is, that God uses familial terms to describe the church. We call each other brother and sister a lot. Why? Because God uses those terms. We call him father. This family sense that he has given us because we are a household of faith. We are the pillars and the foundation of truth, according to 1 Timothy 3.15. Acts 9 says we're growing. Acts 9 talks about how we are an alive body that is growing. So God wants his people to see good things happen. God wants his people to see his beauty, to be a part of that great work. But we can, we can, we run the risk of missing him. We can miss him if we're not careful. So Mark 12, he tells a story to that effect, beginning in verse 1. And he began to speak to them. That's the uh, chief priests. 
the, the elders of Israel, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of that day, they've gathered together. Verse 1 continues. He begins to tell them a story. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. Verse 6. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. So Jesus asked the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went their way. Just a few things of background to this parable to help us understand what Jesus is teaching. This parable actually appears in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. They all tell this story. It's one of, and I'd have to look further, but it's one of, if not the only parable that the religious leaders actually understood. Jesus spoke in parables a lot. He spoke it in front of his followers. Most of the time, his followers come to some sort of understanding of what he was talking about. Either they understand the story or they ask Jesus later, and he interprets the story for them. But the religious leaders, time after time, they are confused by what Jesus is teaching. They just don't get it because their hearts are hard. Their hearts are calloused and hard. They don't really want to receive the teaching of Jesus. And so it's often confusing. But in this story, they get it. At the very end, it is clear that he is talking about them. One other thing that you need to know <clears throat> is that it's Wednesday of Passion Week. Jesus has come into the city. He's on his way to the cross. He has come in and he has cleaned out the temple. He's turned over the, the money changer tables. You've heard those stories. He has gone around and he has talked to people about the forgiveness of sins, even offering forgiveness of sins. All of this has the religious leaders in an uproar. They're mad. And so Wednesday rolls around and they begin to talk about how they can trap him, how they can kill him. Yet again, they're having this conversation. And Jesus begins to tell them this story. Now he uses some really familiar words, some familiar imagery in this story. And so I'm going to kind of break this down for you, but, but let's be clear as to what he's talking about from the beginning. The, the man who plants, plants the vineyard is God. It's God the Father. Uh, the, the, the vineyard is actually Israel, the people of God. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the vineyard. The tenants 
depends on how your translation uh, words that out, but the tenants or, or the vine growers, as some translations say, are the religious leaders of that people. They are the ones who are in charge of the vineyard. The servants that come along and are killed and beaten are the faithful prophets through the ages whom God has sent to speak truth into his people. And of course, the beloved son, he's referring to himself. It's Jesus of course. So the gist of the story is this. God planted a people called Israel. He established his people. And lest we forget, he established this church. It's his church. He established this as a gospel mission to win Arkansas and the region around it. He established this people. He gave the vineyard. He gave the vineyard to the managers the religious leaders. They were supposed to come in and shepherd the people and do well with the people to produce fruit. Sometimes they would get off track. So God sent his servants, the prophets, to speak to the people and to, to bring them about, to speak truth into their lives, to watch over the vineyard. But the religious leaders kill them. And eventually, God the Father is going to send his son into the vineyard. And so if you're keeping notes with me tonight, there's, there's a few things that we can learn from this story. Number one, God gives his people what they need to be successful. God has given his people what they need to be successful. Did you see it in the story? The owner has planted the vineyard. He established every bit of this. He dug a pit. He built a tower. He built a fence around the vineyard. He gave them everything that they needed to succeed. He leased it to the tenants, which was very common in that day, and he went away, expecting fruit from the people that he left it to. Verse 1, as a matter of fact, is a direct quote of Isaiah 5, verse 2, where God plants a nation called Israel as a special and elect vineyard. He cared for her, provided for her, put leaders in place to protect her, to keep her safe, to enable her to prosper, to bring about glory to him and good for others. But she was not producing fruit. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 5 goes on to begin a prophecy of captivity that was coming to the people because they were producing sour grapes, for lack of a better term. And so we see in this story that God gives his people everything that we need to produce fruit. He's given us everything that we need tonight to be successful. You and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, have everything we need in order to grow. We have the gospel, the redemptive story of the ages. We, we have the plan of salvation that has begin, become about ever since God said, let there be light. And it's the story that's going to last through the ages. We have that at our very core. It is our core principle. It's the gospel of Jesus. We have his word. We have the parameters and the promises of life. We have everything that we need in order to live. We have love. God is love. We know that from the scriptures. Love is God. God is love. He is the very embodiment of love. It's his character. We know what love is because God is love. We have forgiveness because Jesus came and he took your burden and, and your sin and your shame upon himself. So we now have this ability to forgive because we have been greatly forgiven. We have the Holy Spirit. God in us 
God resides in you and I because the Holy Spirit has come. The one that empowers us, the one that gives us conviction, the one that gives us courage is right here with us. We have the mission. We don't have to guess at all what God wants us to do. It's very clear. He has told us. He has shown us. So listen, tonight, church, we just need to understand again, we have everything we need to be successful. It's important because sometimes we get into some wrong thinking. Sometimes we get into this whole idea of, well, if we just had, we just had a bigger building, if we just had a newer building, if we just had a bigger budget, if we just had a cooler preacher who could wear skinny jeans, if we just had this, if we just had that, if we just had tricks and bells and wit. Listen, put all of that to the side. Those are third, fourth issues. We have everything we need to grow the kingdom of God in this place. He's given it to us. We can be successful. Churches that are growing, we, we, we work in church revitalization a lot on our team. We go out and we talk a lot to churches about what it takes to grow. Let me give you four or five characteristics of churches that are growing. Number one, worship that celebrates. Now, now, hear what I'm saying. Worship that celebrates. Did I say anything about the style of music? No. I, I've been to cowboy churches that do bluegrass, and they are celebrating. I've asked to join in. Just give me a jug. I'll go to jugging with you. They celebrate. Anybody Andy Griffith fans? You know Mr. Darling off of Andy Griffith? Man, that, I can do things with a jug. They celebrate. They celebrate. That's it. From liturgical to bluegrass to all over the map, the churches that are growing just make sure that it is focused on the Lord Jesus and that it celebrates who he is and what we are in him. We did that tonight. We did that this morning. Cel celebrative worship. Number two, a unity of spirit. A unity of spirit usually brought about by prayer. I see your prayer boards at the very back, the, the days of prayer and fasting and then signing up for the prayer week. That, that is a tremendous thing because what we see over and over again in the New Testament is that as the people of God get together and pray, it brings this unification about. It makes us stronger as we're praying together and we're focused in on what is good and what is right. A focused mission if we have the mission at the very front, let all the superficial just die off to the side. Don't get caught up in the conversations and the trappings of stuff that just at the end of the day does not matter. Servant leaders with vision and strategy. Servant leaders. I went to a church not too long ago where the, the entire staff came to a youth event and they came to every night of the youth event. And I watched as afterwards, they and their families, man, they would be out there sweeping the floors and doing whatever it took to reach the generations. They were leading by serving. They were servant leaders. By the way, at this same youth event, there was a uh, lady that came. I, I saw her as I was standing at the front door on a Friday night. It was a D-Now weekend, 300 students that showed up. And this lady started coming up the walk, and I thought, what in the world is she doing here? She's 92 years old. She was on a walker. 
and she was shuffling up towards the front door. The youth pastor leans over to me and he says, I want you to meet Miss Louise. She came in the door. I met her. Joy of the Lord all over this woman. Not, not a complainer, not a nagger whatsoever. She had the joy of Jesus. I watched as she walked down the aisle. The students were saving her a seat in the smack dab middle of their worship service. They were about to have the music of all music. You know what I'm talking about? She goes in, they, they fold up her walker. These girls are saving her a seat. She shuffles down. The music hits. Her arms go up, and they don't come back down the entire night. She's in the middle of them, praising with everything that she's got. She wants to reach the generations. Youth minister told me, he said, she comes every Wednesday night. Every Wednesday night to youth group. She comes in early with her walker, and she walks the aisles, and she prays over every seat in the room, praying specifically for students. She stays with us through the entire service. He said, when she passes away, there'll be 200 students at her funeral. They'll have to shut down the school. That is a focused mission. Everything else dies away. It's all about reaching people for Jesus. So he has given us everything we need to be successful. Number two, write this down. Wrong motives make us spiritually blind. Wrong motives make us spiritually blind. You see this in verses two through eight. The story tells us that the servants were sent, the prophets of God, but they were beaten and they were killed. Now listen, as everybody is hearing this story, all the folks are outraged. Even the religious leaders are going, man, that is so unfair. That, that's a terrible, terrible story. They're, they're about to find out it's them that is being depicted in the story. But what we find from this is that the tenants, the religious leaders were given this tremendous opportunity. Yet their opportunity became their disadvantage because greed began to seep in, envy begin to seep in jealousy. It came about to where they wanted to control the vineyard. Even though the master had given them the vineyard, they let the bitterness and the jealousy and the envy blind them to a point to where they wanted the vineyard to themselves. They were even willing to kill the servants of God, the servants of the master that came so that they could quench and quelch what God intended for them to do. See, what happened here is they feared a loss of control. They feared this loss of control. They wanted ownership. They, they weren't content being managers. They wanted to own the thing. And that's our instinct as sinners. Our instinct as sinners is make this mine. Mine, mine, mine. There's a problem with that. Sometimes when we get so intent on making this mine, we miss Jesus. If we get off focus and make this all about me, make this all about us, we run the risk of being blind and missing Jesus. What did God do for them? He sent prophets. They beat and killed them. Jeremiah, great prophet that we read a lot, he was beaten, put in the stocks. Isaiah Tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two. A prophet named Zechariah was stoned to death in the court of the temple, 2 Chronicles 24, 21. John the Baptist came as a herald for Jesus, killed. 
beheaded. Paul, I mean, goes on and on. Why am I in the ministry, man? This is terrible. This is what happens, though. People get so blind that they'll even hear the truth and reject what God is trying to do. We take good things, but we try to make them ours. Our desires became, become our gods. And we don't like it when people come in and try to set us straight. We don't like it when people come in and try to tell us the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts. When I'm, I'm going to my physical next week. The truth is going to hurt when my doctor tells me. We don't like it. But God is sending truth into our lives <clears throat> so that we won't miss what he is doing. I keep thinking about this, this concept of the upper room that you guys are calling it. Tonight, here we are, Sunday night, cold, dreary outside, but yet here you are. Do you know how many were in the first upper room? 120. I want you to think about that for just a second. Think about who was in that mix. <clears throat> you had Mary, the mother of Jesus, was sitting in the upper room. Wonder how she felt about Peter being there the man who had just denied her son over and over again. Wonder how John felt about Thomas being there, the doubter. I'm not going to believe. I won't believe him. Do, do you see the potential in that upper room for jealousy and for envy and for finger pointing? But it didn't happen, did it? They came together. They were not blinded by their jealousy and envy and bitterness. They came together. And out of that grew a movement, a worldwide movement came from 120 people. Think about the ministry of Jesus. Do you realize that as Jesus traveled to Capernaum, Bethany, Nazareth, all those towns, do you realize that his travels took him around the size of about two Arkansas counties? Cross County, right? We're in Cross County. What's, a, what's one next to us? Rarara. Yeah, that county. <laughs> I can't hear. I had a sinus infection. I can't hear a thing. Whatever county's next to you. Think about it this way. Jesus traveled about the size of two. We, we kind of think he's worldwide, don't we? We kind of think when he was traveling in... T no, sir. No, ma'am. Two Arkansas counties. When he was resurrected, 120 believers. But within 40 short days... All of a sudden, 3,000. Within a period of just a few years, churches springing up all over the place. It became a worldwide, don't discount what's happening in this place. Don't discount what Jesus can do in this room. God can move and make things happen. He's just looking for a people not blinded by envy and jealousy and wanting to own it. Think about those early disciples. Matthew Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia, dying for his faith. Mark died in Alexandria, drugged through the streets of uh, Greece for his faith. Luke was hanged for his faith. Peter was crucified for his faith. Thomas stabbed with a spear on a missionary trip to India for his faith. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, killed with arrows, refusing to deny his faith. James was beheaded in Jerusalem for his faith. And, and you and I have a hard time getting up for church on Sunday morning? Come on, church. What are we doing? What are we doing? 
Man, what Lord is looking for are some people to put in the vineyard who are not blinded by all the superficial and the mess and get on point, focused on the gospel, ready to serve, ready to go out and share. Jesus will take that and he will grow his church. We don't want to be the owners. We just need to be the managers, the workers in the vineyard. So in other words, it means this. It's not your Sunday school. It's not your Sunday school room. It's Jesus's. It's not your committee. It's Jesus's. It's not your music. It's Jesus's. It's not your church. It belongs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we cannot afford to miss him in this place. The heir was sent. We know according to the story, right? Jesus came. Called the beloved son. Well, we know that language, don't we? God called Jesus his beloved son at his baptism. God called him his beloved son at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is clear. The heir is Jesus Christ. He came and the Pharisees and the religious leaders so blinded sought to kill him. There was a murder in the vineyard. Jesus was telling a people, listen to this, don't, don't miss it. Jesus was telling a people of Scripture. They specialized in Scripture. What was about to happen in front of their eyes? Scripture was being fulfilled in front of them. It should have been so obvious, but they refused to see it because of their motives. They missed him. As good as we are, as people of the book, we've got to be careful not to miss him. I preached a service not too long ago on forgiveness. It's at a church, and man, I preached my heart out. I thought I'd done a good job. They clapped for me a whole lot more than you people did. And uh, <laughs> gave the invitation. A couple of folks came down and prayed at the altar. A couple of folks came up to staff members. It's all about forgiveness. So we ended the service, said amen, and I was gathering my stuff. I mean, we had just said amen, and a fellow made a beeline towards me. And I thought, man, this guy, he's burdened. He wants to talk about forgiveness. Had a long, scraggly beard. I'm a beard guy, I, even long, scraggly ones. I love them, beard. But he's also wearing this kind of weird, funky camo hat, and you could tell this, this dude, he, he just came out of the mountains. All right, not sure about him. So he starts in. He said, sir, I need to talk to you. I said, good, as long as you don't kill me, I'm good, man. And I thought, man, he, he, he wants to talk about the sermon. He pulls out a piece of paper. I thought, he has taken notes. It's, it has writing all over it. He has taken every note of scripture that we have talked about this morning. You know what it was? It was a list of YouTube videos. He wanted me to go watch all of these YouTube videos about the conspiracies that exist today in this country trying to bring down President Trump and all the things that are happening. He, he was a conspiracy theorist type of guy. And I know there's a lot going on in our country, and I know there's a lot that needs to be known and all of these things. But folks, we just had church. We just talked about forgiveness that comes from Jesus. And this man did not hear a word of it. He had an ax to grind, and that's all he was focused on. Listen, be careful. Do you have an ax to grind? 
Is there, is there something that's in you that, that man, that opinion keeps coming out? Does it come out more than Jesus? Be careful. We can't afford to miss him. Last thing I want to say tonight. We lose when we reject him. But Jesus is never defeated. We lose when we reject him. But Jesus has never been defeated. Let's talk about rejection for a second. You ever been rejected? Well, in sixth grade, there was Tanya. In eighth grade, there was Quaid. And on and on. Yeah, you, you know how that feels. But have you ever rejected someone? That's what's happening in this story. The religious leaders are rejecting, rejecting who Jesus is. And Jesus asked them a question, didn't he? He asked them, what, what will the owner do when they kill the heir? He did not even give them a moment to respond. He tells them, point blank, he will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Can I tell you guys that this happened right before their very eyes? Jesus crucified around 33 AD, religious leaders, elders, Pharisees, all looking on, all instigating it. Not 35 years later, AD 70, Titus Vespasian comes in and conquers the entire region, burns down the temple, burns up all of the Levitical records, takes it all away. The vineyard is gone. The Jews today have no idea who could be their chief priest because all the Levitical records are gone. The temple was burned in AD 70, completely destroyed. It hasn't been rebuilt in 2,000 years. Jesus told him, he said, listen, you do this and the, the, this whole thing's going to fall apart. And it did. The system was devastated. It was decimated because they rejected who Jesus was. And, and it says that the vineyard would be given in, to, to a new people, a, a new people that would produce fruit. The 12 tribes of Israel became the 12 apostles, including Paul. And today we live on their teaching. We meet together 2,000 years later because the vineyard has been given to the church of Jesus Christ. Twelve ordinary people who follow Jesus. They wrote the New Testament and they gave us the new system. And there's only one high priest that we go to today. He is the cornerstone, the most essential part of the puzzle the most essential part of the building from which everything else lines up. The cornerstone is Jesus, and on him this church would be built, and they totally missed it. This, this, this was said, this, this little scripture on the cornerstone that the builders rejected, that's part of Psalm 118. Interesting. Psalm 118 is in the, what we call the Hallel. It's a collection of hymns. Psalm 113 through 118, five songs that were sung every Passover. What did I tell you at the very beginning? What week are they in? They're in Passover week. The people are singing about the cornerstone, and the cornerstone is standing in front of their eyes, and they reject him, and the kingdom is given to others. He was the Messiah no one wanted, yet he is the foundation for the church 2,000 years later. Think of all the military conquests over the last 2,000 years that have tried to snuff out Christianity, yet still we stand. Think of 
all of the philosophers that have tried for the last 2,000 years to reason Jesus away, yet still we worship. Think of all the science and the technology that has tried to explain him, tried to defeat him, yet he will not die. Nothing can defeat Jesus. Why? Why? Because if you never die, you are never defeated. And Jesus did not die. He rose again three days later. We meet together as a group of people who have resurrection power in our very spirit. We cannot die if we are followers of Christ. If we don't die, we're never, ever defeated. We are part of an advancing kingdom. The scriptures say that we are joint heirs with Jesus. What is he called in this passage? The heir that came to the vineyard. We are joint heirs with him. We get to take part in this kingdom and watch and help it to grow. Charles Spurgeon said, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus' love is manifested in us. It is spiritual insanity to reject Jesus Christ. It's spiritual insanity. I'm just telling you, if you're not a follower of him, this, I, I, to me it's insanity because he is the one that lives to give us life and meaning. And we meet together as the church. Let's not miss him. Let's do something with this. We have everything that we need to be successful. He's enough. He's enough for us tonight. I told you I was going to tell you a little story. Part of my testimony is being a part of that group that traveled with the 94 National Championship. My freshman and sophomore year of college, I did all those things that you swore you would never do, if you know what I mean. Lived a, a party lifestyle there for a while. And so when we got around to March Madness and we started traveling with the team, man, we were living the high life. I'm not kidding. This little old boy from Mansfield, country boy, not been too many places. All of a sudden, we're staying in hotels that have ice skating rinks in the bottom of them. Man, we're, we're living... On, on the large. We've got all sorts of red carpet that's being rolled out. We're going to Oklahoma City, Memphis, and people are putting us on TV, and we're on national TV, and all this stuff. We're traveling around with these superstars and all this business. It was, it was great. Professors were letting us out of class without much to worry about. Grade-wise, not many concerns. They were giving us a per diem financially per day to travel. Not much to think about financially. It was great. We were partying. We got all the way to Charlotte. They pl we play Arizona in that first round of the Final Four. Beat them handedly. Come back that next night and beat Duke. Any Duke fans in the house? Well, I got one on you, all right? You guys remember this game, those of you who are old enough, 25 years later. Game goes back and forth. Eventually, in the second half, Duke makes a little run. They get ahead, but we, we, we tighten it back up. We're down a little bit. There's one minute left in the game. There's a play that happens where, where the ball is kind of tossed around. It's kind of kicked out to a guy at the top of the circle. His name is Big Dog, Dwight Stewart. He kind of fumbles it there for a second. I really thought he was going to shoot 
he could shoot some threes. We were down. We needed a three. So he passes it over to Scotty Thurman. Scotty Thurman launches a three with zero seconds on the shot clock over the outstretched arms of Antonio Lang, a future NBA player. Goes in. The Hogs win. Place goes nuts. I've never, ever been in an environment like that. Total electricity coursing through your body. People are screaming and crying. Bill Clinton, the president's up there giving a thumbs up. Cheerleaders are hugging band members. That's revival. I'm telling you straight up. That's revival. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the honest truth, though. <laughs> I married a cheerleader, so I'm good. I'm going to tell you straight up, though. It, it, all, it all went dull for me. I was standing there in the middle of that arena, and I'm not kidding you when I say this. I haven't had another moment like it. Everything went dull. I couldn't hear. Everything was just kind of numb. Everything was kind of frozen. I'm not a weird dude, okay? Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. But I heard the voice of God that night. Right there in the middle of that arena. Here's what he said. He said, you, you've traveled the country. You've been doing all this stuff. He said, you've been living the high life. He said, I have one question for you. One question. Does it even compare to walking with me? I looked around at all of this, and I'm going to be honest with y'all. It doesn't even come close to walking with Jesus. We can be living large. It doesn't even come close to knowing that Jesus is right there with you. He is enough for us. He is enough for this church. If we have the presence of God in this place, nothing can stop us.